Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations will cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. Stephen Harris and Travis Wusso are here around the table. Hey guys, how's it going? Good to be here, always. And our featured guest for this episode is Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan, thanks for joining us at the Leland House. Thank you, Jeff. Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director for Nine Marks. Nine Marks is a ministry that equips church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for healthy churches. Jonathan began his career in journalism as an editor for an economics magazine here in Washington, D.C. He earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science and, since his call to ministry, a Master's of Divinity and a Ph.D. in theology. Jonathan lives with his wife and four daughters in a suburb of D.C. where he serves as an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church. In addition to his work at Nine Marks, he's a seminary teacher, article writer, and author. And his recent book, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age, is the topic of this conversation. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by the 2019 Evangelicals for Life Conference. Evangelicals for Life is a conference hosted by the ERLC and North American Mission Board. This two-day event is for you to learn how to be a voice for life and to champion human dignity in your community. Evangelicals for Life takes place here in Washington, D.C., ahead of the annual March for Life on January 17th and 18th, 2019. To learn more, visit evangelicals.life. And if you're able to join us here in D.C., you can use the promo code Capital Conversations to save 20% on your registration. That's promo code Capital Conversations, all uppercase, capital with an O, conversations, to save 20% on your registration. Visit evangelicals.life to learn more. So Jonathan, you began your career here uh, in this city. What originally drew you to Washington, D.C. after studying political science? Well, I've always loved politics from a young age. I was paying attention to Abraham Lincoln and reading stuff, his debates and whatnot, and after a undergraduate and graduate degree in poli-sci, as you mentioned, I thought I want to move to D.C. and pay off some debt getting a job in politics before going into further study. I was going to do – I was thinking about doing a Ph.D. in political science or political philosophy. Okay, okay. But wanted to come here first and ended up sort of drawn into the city and, as you mentioned, working as a editor at a magazine, so – and so t- tell us a bit about your call to ministry, because you're working in politics, uh, but now, uh, and you've served as an interim pastor, so, so what, did that, what did that call and transition look like in your life? Yeah, sure. Moved here in 96, a non-attender, non-church attender, calling myself a Christian, very much living in and for the world. Joined a church in 96 that a friend from England in grad school had recommended, and found myself radically bowled over and eventually changed by the power of the preaching and the gospel and the embrace of the church community. 97, 98, all this happened gradually, 96, 97, 98. Eventually, uh, my life just looked radically different. Everybody knew me as like 
you've really changed. And my interest had changed. I'd, I'd gone from, you know, being obsessed with things of the world to being obsessed with things of, of the gospel and the church. And that showed itself in all sorts of ways. Eventually, one day in 98, 99, I went to the pastor and I said, look, I, I think I want to do what you do. I want to I preach. And he's like, well, <laughs> not so sure. Because I'd go out and I'd do dumb stuff and I'd come to him and I'd confess it. So when I went and said, I want to go to ministry, he's like, yeah, we'll watch you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Eventually, yeah, I was sent to seminary and, as you mentioned, did a couple of interim pastors, but have been working for nine marks since 06. And uh, so, so I know this because I'm a, a member here at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And as I was, as my wife and I were, were coming into membership of this church, you were headed out, headed out to Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. So I, I would just love for you to share a little bit about why, why you left a great church to go plant a new one. Uh, we might have people on this podcast who might have pastors who are challenging them to be willing to leave a great and healthy church that they're at. Why, why should a Christian be willing to do that? You know, just today I was uh, reviewing a book on multi-site churches and uh, just reflecting on the fact that churches will often go into neighborhoods where there's already gospel-preaching churches. I think pastors should have a different ambition. I think they should look around their metro area, ask themselves, where are they not gospel preaching churches, either unhealthy or not gospel preaching or whatever. Well, there's about a hundred of us from Capitol Hill Baptist living in Chevrolet, Maryland, and there were no healthy gospel preaching churches. Uh, there's a Roman Catholic church, there was a liberal church, and that was basically it. But there's a hundred of us living there, and we're just thinking, great commission, why don't we plant a church here? Yeah. Right? And uh, so we eventually found ourselves a preacher guy, me and three other non-staff elders, like we were lay elders at Capitol Hill, but none of us wanted to preach full-time. And then John Joseph came along who wanted to preach full-time. He was candidating at a different church. And we're like, John, why don't you you come plant with us in Chevrolet? We, the three lay elders, will help you out and assist you in that process. And about 65 of the 100 folk living there decided to join with us. It was great. Started in February. How's it going? Uh, fantastic. Uh, good, good. I mean, we were an acorn. I can feel our acornness. I was back at Capitol Hill recently and was like, well, this is an oak tree and we're, <laughs> we're, we're definitely an acorn and I can feel that, but yeah. it's great. Yeah. Good, good. Jonathan, appreciate you being here today to converse with us, man, about the product of your writing ministry, which has been a blessing to my life, uh, as well as our personal relationship. And so glad to to be able to to talk to you about this important topic. So I'm, I'm looking at your, your book here, uh, man, uh, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And on the cover, we have two boxing gloves. One has a donkey on it. The other has an elephant on it. You got a little church in the middle. That obviously seems intentional. So I want you to tell us a little bit about what's going on on the cover. Not not exactly an image of civility. So about the cover. Intentional thoughts behind it. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, that cover tells the story. You have operatives on both parties trying to co-opt the God vote. Yeah. Right? And before this interview, we were just chatting about how, uh, you know, a lot of evangelicals are feeling split right now and... Mm -hmm. In, in, in the elections, these recent elections, and you, you can see people on both sides trying to grab the evangelical vote, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. And, or the, and the Christian vote more broadly. I think you look certain subsectors or certain tribes of, of Christians, and some are going to gravitate right, some are going to gravitate left, mm-hmm. and our faith is politicized in many regards, and... Uh, we feel that division inside of churches. Certainly, we feel that division in culture broadly, but I think we also feel it inside of our churches. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I could tell you stories from my time and when pastoring at Capitol Hill Baptist as uh, one of the, the non-staff at lay elders there. I, I could, you know, I experience it now at Chevrolet Baptist. We're, we're just outside of the Capitol, across the border. But in the 2016 elections, for instance, uh, we we had some intense moments going through that and after that, frankly, where people on both sides felt strongly for one reason or another. And the church, the unity of the church, the mission of the gospel is sort of caught in the crosshairs of, of these different uh, perspectives on what's best for the American body politic. Jonathan, I really appreciate how you started there because one of the things that you suggest in your book is that for the Christian, uh, his or her political life actually begins inside the church. Uh, and and that it seems like it, it's counterintuitive because I think in, in many people's diagnosis of the current problem, they would say that, well, the issue is that politics has crept into the church when politics ought to be something that we keep barred and on the outside. You seem to be suggesting something different, that there is something in the nature of what the church is that is inherently political. And from there, our external engagement in politics ought emerge. Can you tell us a little bit about why you framed it that way and what you mean by that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the one of my starting points in, in the book is to say that um, our view of politics has become very American, and in some ways we've we've blended our Christianity with our Americanism and our Americanism with our Christianity. So, for instance, think of that famous text from Jesus: "Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's." And we we sort of think about that in terms of okay, you got one circle that's our God's things, and you got another circle Caesar's things. And those are separate circles in, in, in our American way of thinking. And, and so the Christian version of that is, hey, don't bring politics into the church, right? As if God is saying that, sitting there looking at Caesar's cir- circle, kind of biting his nail saying, oh, gosh, I wish I had access to that circle. Well, that's ridiculous. What, what we really have is Caesar himself is created in God's image. Jesus is like, who's, who's, whose image is on this coin? They say Caesar's. And, and as I just said, all the Jews there would have known that Caesar's in God's image. In other words, God's things includes Caesar's. And so, sure enough, a few chapters later, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, in other words, politics for a Christian begins with the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We say Jesus is Lord over everything, and that affects how I view all of these different things. Now, that's not to say that pastors should get up and preach this candidate versus that candidate, this position versus that position. It's not to say that the Bible is a book of case study through all these different areas of of law and jurisprudence. It's not. It doesn't aspire to be that. Just like it doesn't address your dentistry, it doesn't necessarily address directly, at least, say, your healthcare program or your immigration program. Now, there's biblical principles we can bring to bear in those different domains, but but we begin to uh, think about who we are in light of the world and our call to justice and doing justice and our call to be good neighbors from what we learn in Scripture. So, yeah, the, the, the Christian life is, uh, or rather the political life for a Christian begins with acknowledging that Jesus is Lord over everything. And then I'm going to look to Scripture and figure out, okay, what, what does it say about justice? What other principles need to be brought to bear? At the same time, I do want to draw a, a line between being, say, political and being partisan or pursuing various political policies or tactics. Yeah, th- th- those aren't quite the same thing. 
Now, Jonathan, you said a lot there, and I, I want to make sure that we take time to unpack it all. You you started with, and I think this is so relevant to the current discourse in our country, in our communities, perhaps even in our churches. Christians separating their Christian identity from their Americanness. Americanness as a category is it's kind of a contested claim these days. Many people haven't thought about how they live in and out of their Americanness. I mean, what what drew you to that critique particularly to kind of frame uh, some of the things you talk about in this book? Americans from the days of the colonies have been tempted to uh, recreate America in the image of the kingdom of God. Go back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony with John Winthrop making his claim about this being a city on the hill. Um, and that kind of brand of American exceptionalism coursing through American history mm-hmm. uh, such that we have attempted to, uh, to bring heaven to earth in some sense here and now. Now, in many respects, great things have been done. I, I don't want to complain about America, American history. I've traveled enough to know that I love America, right? And I grew up going to ball games and loving Thanksgiving and all of that. So you're, you're not going to get a critique of America as such for me in that. But nonetheless, there has been this tradition— of trying to make more of it than we should. Uh, John Wilsey talks about it in his excellent book, um, uh, American, Civil Religion and American Exceptionalism. Or maybe I got that backwards. But uh, this, this, and you, you, get, you get, you know, JFK picking that up, City on the Hill, in his speeches, and then Ronald Reagan picks up that phrase too. The thing is, who, who's the city on the hill? Well, it's the church, right? Right. The church is the city on the hill. We're to be that dynamic place of, of justice and righteousness that serves as a model to the nations. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to say to my fellow Americans, praise God for America. Thank God for the good gifts and all that we've known in America. Nonetheless, we are finally aliens. We are finally strangers. And I think a crucial text on this is Psalm 2. Mm-hmm. Why do the nations rage? Well, stop and ask yourself, does that include America? Does it, Does America rage against the Lord and his anointed? Mm. That's an awkward question for some of us. Yeah, careful there. But uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're loyal, first and foremost, to King Jesus mm. as Christians. And uh, we're in this world, but we're not of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, just a quick sidebar. <laughs> I am constantly editing that line city shining on a hill out of coalition letters that we're asked to sign, you know, where, you know, to say whatever issue, you know, needs to, you know, we, we have to support this issue, we have to oppose this in order to, you know, make, make sure that the United States maintains its status as a, as a city shining on a hill. I mean, it is woven deeply, I think, into our political discourse even today. Well, and here I want to say there's great hope for Christians because we can't be confident about the future of America, Right. We can be confident about the future of the church. Jesus says the church wins, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can have no such confidence in the future of America. So while we're here, let's do good. Let's love our neighbors. Let's pursue justice. But let's put our hope in Jesus and what he's doing among his people. That way we stay engaged, but we do so in a manner that's uh, not misplaced, misdirected, and finally wrongful in the tone we adopt and how we we treat our neighbors. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned a minute ago about issues where we where we are very clear about what the Bible says and others you you refer to these as straight line and and jagged line uh, issues in your book. 
un- unpack that that idea a little bit for us. I think yeah, we'll sure. I'm taking that from, from Robert Benny's book, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Politics and Religion. Straight line issues. There's a straight line between the biblical text and the policy application. So biblical text, do not murder. Policy application, abortion's wrong. That's a straight line. I don't got to do a lot of thinking to get from one to the next, right? A jagged line issue is going to be one where there's a number of biblical texts we want to bring to bear on our questions of policy and policy making and constitution writing. But it's there's there, there's more of a jagged line. Let's talk about healthcare. Well, there's certain biblical principles I'm going to bring to bear on that topic, but I'm going to kind of zigzag back and forth trying to figure out, okay, well, in this context, with these questions, with these principles at stakes, and it's not going to be a straight movement. And what I talk about in the book is, on the one hand, Christians are called to care about both kinds of issues. But I think we talk about them differently. I think Mm -hmm. pastors talk about them differently. I think pastors can get up and preach from the pulpit on abortion, right? I think that's a straight line. Abortion's Mm -hmm. wrong. Racism is wrong. Just it's really clear, right? At the same time, over here on the policy or the jagged line, okay, well, how exactly do we go about combating abortion? How exactly do we go about combating race on racism? What do we think about the difference between, you know, a flat tax versus a progressive tax? Well, I think over there on the tactical side of things, yeah, I think pastors and churches should back up from binding the conscience and leave that as a domain of Christian freedom. Hmm. You know, one of the things that comes up as a theme over and over again is is once you, you know, once you get into the details of writing an appropriations bill or or arguing about abortion or abortion funding or increases of access to abortion, you know, even, I mean, even those issues can take on a jagged line sort of component where, you know, we may all agree that abortion is wrong, but we might disagree about the extent to which this particular policy furthers something or the sort of the conscience implications for uh, for a particular issue. I mean, I think that part of what we're trying to do with our, just with our office here is is try to make those complex issues simple so that people can understand them. But I think in doing so, we we might straighten out some jagged lines every now and then. Well, I want to say Christians, individual Christians and organizations like ERLC and others absolutely should do that jagged line work and, and write the bills and write, well, I guess you don't write the bills, but you know, you're recommending certain practices and so forth. Uh, and that's good work for Christians to do. I think the church institutional, if I could call it that, and, and the pastor as a mouthpiece of the church institutional needs to step back a little bit on those jagged line tactical issues. Hmm. One of the questions we're asked often at this office, and not not even by churches and church leaders who are approaching our work on religious liberty, but by other political entities, is do you support religious liberty? Uh, like, like, let's talk about religious liberty broader than just the Baptist sense of religious liberty, just protecting Christians. Uh, is, is that something you do at ERLC? And it's always a f- fun sort of question to tee off on. I've gotten that sometimes when talking about different different uh, organizations that will uh, partner with us for internship programs. They just want to be real real sure that their interns are working on religious liberty for more than just Christians. Can you talk about the different so the different domains of what the church's responsibility is with religious liberty versus what the political responsibility is with religious liberty? Well, religious liberty, as I understand it, comes out of a, a, a strong understanding of what God has authorized different people to do. What does He authorize the state to do? What does He authorize the church to do? Right. right. Um, I understand He's authorized to state. It begins in Genesis uh, 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice what it says there. It doesn't say whoever sheds or blasphemes God. Hmm. It's whoever sheds the blood of man. And if you keep reading throughout Scripture, there's no place that I'm aware of 
where human beings are authorized to criminalize or prosecute false religion or blasphemy. Exception, of course, nation of Israel. But we're not Israelites. We're not listening in the, we're not living there. So the nations, at no point are they authorized to prosecute false worship, false religion. Rather, to, to criminalize something, there needs to be harm against a human being, whoever sheds the blood of man, right? So I understand religious liberty begins because I've not been authorized by God to do otherwise, number one. Number two, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't change hearts and consciences, right? Mm, so I'm neither right. authorized nor able uh, to 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 prosecute false religion. So yeah, I, I understand that, uh, at least, the big caveat, at least until false religion begins to harm a human being. So the Christian scientist who says, no, I'm going to withhold health care from my, my child who's ailing and dying, I'm going to say, sorry, God's not authorized you to do that. In fact, just the opposite. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come in and uh, I'm going to rule against your ability to withhold health care from your child. Is that defying religion? Well, in this case, yeah, absolutely, absolutely it is because harm is being done to a person, and I understand that the state has jurisdiction there. Jonathan, another thing that you that you bring out that I think is important, uh, you bring out in your books, important to unpack our conceptions of the public square and what's going on there. Uh, we obviously do work inside the Beltway. Political discourse is happening all the time. We're speaking politics, speaking the language of politics, um, speaking from the site of our theological convictions. People at Starbucks or at Safeway or just in their local communities. Public Square has a battleground of gods. What are you pushing back against there in that framework? And perhaps why has that framework that you were pushing back against been so persuasive to people that you want to dissuade them of? Part of the American experiment is the idea that we can get together and govern ourselves as a nation apart from our religion, right? Rather, we can agree on certain shared principles like equality, rights, freedom. And if Hey, everybody at this table, we, we agree on equality, rights, freedom, right? We're good? Yeah. Okay. I agree. You have, you have your God, I have my God, but we can leave those gods behind, step into the public square as a quote-unquote neutral space, and conduct ourselves as a nation. That's, that's, that's the American uh, experiment. kind of began on that fundamental assumption. And that works when everybody basically has got a Christian-ish God hmm. governing our morality, right? But now, fast forward 250 years— and you have your progressive God, I have my Christian God, he's got his Muslim God, she's got her, her nun's God, whatever, uh, that person is a hockey player, that person is a stockbroker with their gods, whatever. Okay, does that work anymore when we talk about equality, freedom, rights? Do we all agree on what equality, free, what about marriage equality? What about freedom to choose? What about the right to define my own uh, gender? Well, I'm, I'm still saying rights, equality, freedom, but suddenly we have different gods animating, determining what we think rights, freedom, freedom equality are. So suddenly this, uh, this kind of, I hate to say it, sort of pretend game that we had of leaving our gods out of the public square is exposed for what it is. Our gods have been there all along. When you step into the public square, you can't help but bring your gods with you because you have a certain view on a policy or in a constitutional principle, right? And what's behind that? Well, a view of justice. What's behind that view of justice? Well, a worldview. What's behind the worldview? A God, every time, all the time. So I was speaking to a group of college students uh, here in D.C. recently, and they said, so are you saying we should impose our morality on other people through law? And I'm like, name one law for me that doesn't impose <laughs> yeah, what else are we doing? somebody's morality. Right. That's what law does 
Let's just be honest about it. Mm. So I'm not saying we should bring our gods into the public square. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we are. Mm-hmm. We can't help it. I can imagine, though, Jonathan. I mean, I, that means that the conversation becomes more explicit, more honest, more et cetera. One of those things would also be more difficult, it seems, because if if the pretend game has been going on for so long— It's a ruse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah but, yeah, but so what do you do? You, do we always have to go back to presuppositions? Well, in some ways, yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I come into the public square, and I'm going to make two kinds of arguments. I'm going to make common ground arguments, and I'm going to make sectarian ar- arguments. Sometimes, uh, in fact, most of the time, I'm going to make common ground arguments. Hey, look, we have different gods. Let's just be honest, all right? But I actually think what I'm recommending here is going to be better for you, better than me. Look at statistics. Uh, and that, that's a common ground argument. Call it a sociologist argument. Or maybe I'm going to make it an, an appeal to conscience. Appeal to conscience is a common ground argument. It's saying, look, we're different gods, but you don't want me to molest your conscience. I don't want you to molest mine. Can we just agree to respect one another's conscience? Is good? Okay. That's a common ground argument. Natural law itself is a kind of common ground argument, trying to appeal to certain moral principles. Now, you can say these do or don't work, but that's what they are, common ground arguments. I think occasionally Christians need to be honest and say, no, look, I'm actually going to make a sectarian argument here. Uh, I think God is God over everything. And uh, therefore, I think it's good for our society that X or Y. I think that's fine for us to do as well. Back on straight line issues, probably not on jagged line issues. Hmm. Um, but you know, I think in moving into the public square, we need to A, be honest, B, be willing for civility's sake to exercise common ground arguments. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the word civility. We're we're in a time right now where it's it's not cool to be civil, uh, the, or at least everybody is angrily demanding that everybody else be civil. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, you write that we should we should love people who want to destroy us. That that can make sense for the Christian thinking about. Uh, thinking about evangelism and sort of Sunday morning, how they should conduct themselves. But for, for Christians who are engaged in politics, that seems like a pretty scary thing to do. What what word would you have for, for that Christian who— Well, that's not my word. That's Jesus' word. <laughs> right? Love love your enemies. Don't, okay, don't, okay. Don't okay. pin that one on me. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, it's so much more fun to own the libs than it is to, than it is to love your neighbor. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's think about why things are uh, uncivil right now, because there are different views of justice at play, right? And there is a sense in which anger is the right response to injustice. When you see a child being abused, you should be angry, and you should go to the abuser, and I don't know that civility is going to be the top thing on your list that you're, you're trying to bring to bear, Right. Rather, what you want to do is you want to see an end to that injustice. And so what's going on in the body politic, the American body politic right now, are it's, it's a battleground of gods, and therefore we have very different views of justice. Right. And you have several competing visions of justice at play. And so one side's looking to the other side and, and, and thinking, they're trying to destroy my humanity. Right. And another side's looking back at the first side and saying, you're trying to destroy my religion. And in both cases, those are kinds of injustices, right? Dramatic injustices. Right. And so on the, I guess my first word is like, let's, let's understand the incivility and almost make room for it. So when, when, when Hillary Clinton on CNN says, well, yeah, there's a time for civility when the Democrats are back in power. Hmm. And we think, okay, that's horrible. On the other hand, I, I want you to start, but just try by trying to understand it. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, what? And I think that's going to help Christians in the public square achieve civility, insofar as that's a good thing to achieve, by recognizing what's true, right, and good and what the other side is saying. Now, that's hard to do. That requires, uh, number one, really listening to them. Number two, I think, having a strong doctrine of God's common grace, whereby I'm going to assume that the sinner across the aisle from me, there's something in what they're saying that by God's common grace, he causes the right, the, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's something in that they're saying that's justice worthy. How can I hear that, embrace that, mm. affirm that, mm. work for that with them? Now, as I do that, and as I affirm a common humanity and a common view of justice in what they're saying, I think civility might start to return. I think that's a good uh, good word to end on, Steve. Is there anything else you want to cover on the book before we go to the off topic? Yeah, I mean, th- I mean, there's so much here. So I, w- I would just encourage our readers to get it. Um, a last thing, I, th- I think a word, uh, Jonathan, we, we kind of talked at and kind of around this. Um, you have a potential reader in mind. You're trying to accomplish a potential goal. If you just could kind of sum up uh, and you might might hate doing this, but but you've probably done it before a million times with this book. What are you trying to accomplish here, and why do you think listeners should consider accessing this work, commending it? Why'd you write the book? Yeah, in some ways, uh, every book you write is a bit of self therapy. Yeah, right. <clears throat> like you're saying the things <laughs> you wish somebody had said to you. Yep. And you think need to be said. So you, you asked earlier about American, our American identity. I mean, I, I grew up. Hmm, I don't know if I confuse God and country. I don't know if I confuse the church and and the public space, but maybe a little bit, right? And to watch America increasingly disown some of its Christian values, at least if you're white. I understand mm-hmm. minorities have had a very different experience in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Things haven't gotten from, from, from good to worse. I think for many minorities, things have gotten better, right? And praise God for that. So I don't want to pretend like history is all just one movement up or down. It's not. It's complex. Nonetheless, insofar as America has, to some extent, walked away from uh, certain moral Christian principles, um, uh, that has required a lot of Christians to sort of rethink their relationship to America. And so Trevin Wax made the point that you know older Christians tend to think of America as Jerusalem, whereas younger Christians tend to think of America as Babylon. Well, that's a process of rethinking the relationship between faith and politics, the mm-hmm. subtitle of my book, right? And so what I'm what I'm trying to help readers do, uh, readers like myself out there, evangelical readers, is, okay, understand what is the state, what is the church, uh, how do we read the Bible politically, what is what is justice? Man, so much controversy over that. Mm-hmm. What, what does the Bible say about justice? And uh, finally, I'm trying to, and perhaps most importantly, I'm trying to invigorate, encourage, inspire with a vision of the church mm-hmm. as this embassy of light, yeah. of, of justice and righteousness that shows a model to the nations of what of what we can move forward with a happy confidence mm-hmm. that God is doing, whether America gets better or worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the concepts that I've, I've most appreciated about your work, Jonathan, and the curse here, but also in several of your other works, the church as embassy, that kind of ecclesiological focus and frame. If you haven't heard that, uh, listeners, that 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 concept is worth, I think, the the price alone, just thinking about uh, our, our local gatherings as political outposts of a kingdom. And for each episode, we like to ask uh, one off-topic question just for fun for everybody around the table to answer. Uh, so, Jonathan, I'll, I'll start with you uh, for, for this week's question since you're our, since you're our guest. Who is, who is one historical leader you admire and why? Well, many leaders for many things 
hard to narrow it down. Sure, it's not it's not like just, who's the most important historical. Right. I'd say on this topic, I've been fascinated by the figure of Augustine. The city of Rome had just been sacked, and at this point, Rome had been Christianized. And then, you know, this is post-Constantine, and and people had been resting their hopes on Christianity as the savior of Rome, and now it's sacked. And so now the the people are coming to Augustine and saying, "What happened? I I thought this was the eternal city." And so he writes this massive book, The City of God, um, sort of answering that question: How how do we understand what Rome is in light of? God's purposes in history broadly and redemptive history in particular. And just having to think that through. I think we're in a similar time right now. Hmm. How do we understand the relationship between our faith and God's work and uh, in the church and among his people in relation to America? So I think what Augustine tried to do in City of God, I try to do a little bit in this book, and I think a lot of us need to do more work at doing. Sure, I'll go next. Um, this is just one. Uh, it's just somebody you admire. I, I, I would, I would, I would put forward uh, Frederick Douglass as as one of many figures, and it's mainly because uh, I'm engaging a very large biography uh, by a professor, Yale professor named David Blight, who wrote a new work on Frederick Douglass that will likely become the the main uh, volume text that treats his life. Um, Douglass is a 19th century figure comes to prominence, um, writes an autobiography in 1845, the year that SBC was actually founded, just talking about his experience as a slave. What I'm particularly appreciative of Douglas um, for is the way in which he is conceiving of his own Christianity uh, in that period as a critique on um, conceptions of Christianity in the 19th century and the way in which he's leveraging what I would regard as a, a, a biblical Christianity that is in very decisive, careful ways showing and demonstrating uh, the hypocrisy of a country in that in that particular moment. And I'm, I'm using him uh, as my figure because I think part of the work that needs to be done in our current cultural moment is a right reckoning with history, particularly for Christians to reckon with the history of a faith that has been um, deployed complicitly um, in particular histories against particular groups. And so um, that's just one of the words that I'm always speaking about um, how do we move forward positively in our current moment, a right reckoning with history. And I think Douglas is a figure that I would commend to individuals who are trying to get history right so that they can act wisely in the present for a hopeful future. So Stephen, if we're going to read one thing by Douglas, start with the autobiography. Start with the autobiography. Including that little appendix on yes, slaveholder yes. religion. Yep, absolutely right. I've been kind of I've been trying to decide which one I'm gonna you know who who to draw out. And this better be good. I, it's, You've had a lot of time to think. That's true. It's not gonna be that good. I I actually so with a group of a uh, group of guys in my church, Restoration Church, we've been studying Kings in the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, and I have I have always loved the story of the story of Josiah when he when they find the Book of the Law, the Book of Deuteronomy, and you know they they tear their clothes because they realize. You know how far they've they've come from the law, and you know I think you know Hezekiah is another example of this of really courageously instituting reforms across the system that must have been politically difficult uh, to accomplish. But part of the reason why why I mention that is is just kind of a bonus question uh, for you, Lehman. I think you know the you know to the extent that one of the messages of the you know of the authors of Kings is the idea that so as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Um, and the idea of 
of you know the the righteousness of the particular leader of 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 that people of Israel being more or less outcome determinative or at least explanatory uh, for you know for everything that happens. Help us make sense of that. Help us make sense of the message of kings, uh, and you know we've talked about the differences between the United States and, and the nation of Israel. But but help us help us understand uh, that message for us today. Yeah, I feel like as goes the king, so goes the nations. That was especially true of Israel in a particular historical, redemptive sort of way. So thinking back to Deuteronomy twenty-eight and the list of blessings and curses. So I think it'd be careless of us as Christians today to apply that directly to our own situation, right? Because God had a particular law and a particular set of promises and warnings for Israel that he doesn't for any other nation. I would say as goes leaders of the church, so goes the church in precisely the same way, hmm. right? I think that's that's where you find the direct application. That said, uh, I do want to say that uh, God's common grace grants many a nation— better than it deserves, but I have little confidence that America will long remain strong. And guess what I'm doing? I'm reading from my book now. This is the very, this is, <laughs> he, 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 this he is grabbed it and pulled it open. <laughs> I did. I have little confidence that America... I'm just, yeah, just going to... No, no, read. no, please. I'll read. Okay, please, one please, paragraph. Please. Here it is. I have little confidence that America will long remain strong, prosper, prosperous, and free without any concept of God's righteousness and justice somewhere in the background. That's not because I believe in a civil prosperity gospel. Obey God and the nation will be blessed as his chosen people. That's what I was just talking about. It's because I believe the way of God's righteousness and justice is the way of wisdom. And prosperity and flourishing ordinarily come to the wise. Think of the book of Proverbs. Hmm. The nation can be strong apart from God's righteousness, like a totalitarian state is strong. Or it can be free in some impoverished and mangy sense of that word, like a stray dog is free. But it won't be both. Where do I go then? Well, the next paragraph begins, which brings me back to healthy churches. If there is hope for the nation, it's through the witness and work of churches. Amen. Jeff, who's your historical figure? Well, this... You you wrote the question. I know, I know, I know. No, 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 I have one. I just know you're going to make fun of me because here we are in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to say... Washington himself. But the reason for that is because we were just recently down at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And I I just cannot get over the fact that Washington resigned his military commission back to Congress rather than putting himself up as a king. That and he went back to his farm. I mean, that is that is worth naming this city after him. And I I just I can't get over that. I can't get over the fact that he, can, he can resigned I say something that power. About that? Yeah. Can I jump in here? Yeah. And I think we we should laud and honor the uh founders for many of the principles that we have because of them. But but do you know why he did that? Why? Well, I don't know why he did that. But what what's behind that? I think is a Christian view of humility. Hmm. Right? And I think what's wonderful about Jefferson, Madison, Washington, Adams is the fact that they all kind of grew up in Sunday school. <laughs> proverbially speaking. And what we get from them that is so precious isn't some enlightenment project. What we get from them that is so precious is the fact that they affirm the equality of all people because they understood this from Scripture, hmm. right? And I think Washington's example of that is is not something you get elsewhere because whether or not Washington was a Christian, he had been right. Christianized in some sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think our, our, our country, at least if you're white— 
and a, and a, and a male in the in the 1780s and 90s owes owes a a, a debt to Christianity more than anything else. Yeah, two pretty big caveats. I mean, I, I agree with you, and if you haven't been to the State House in... In Annapolis, Maryland. In Annapolis, it, Maryland, they have a whole exhibit of, of Washington resigning his uh, and, his military papers. And it's, it's one cool. of the and it's one of the portraits in the Capitol Rotunda, and rightfully so, because yeah. that, I mean, that set off... Yeah, it, it changed the course of history and self-government forever. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for joining us. As I, as I said, Jonathan's book is How the Nations Rage, and you can find it wherever books are sold. Well, and one thing I'll add on that is if you like Where the Nation, or How the Nations Rage, you should also read Political Church, which is, a, which is another really great book. Well, it's, it's pretty academic warning, though. Well, that's true. It was, it was hard for me as an amateur in uh, philosophy, but, but I really enjoyed it. It's a good book. And when you say How the Nations Rage, maybe you should say it like with rage, like, How the Nations Rage! Or maybe Maybe I'll try that in (laughs) post-production. You can stay in touch with Jonathan and his writing at ninemarks.org and on Twitter at Jonathan D. Lehman. Was Jonathan Lehman already taken when he said it? Yes, it was. I'm sorry about that. So I stuck the middle initial in. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delft, Conrad Close, and Brooke Kramer for providing research and publishing this episode online. Resources from the conversation are available at erlc.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church. 